0: good morning everyone how's everybody doing excited to be here i'm excited that you're here and i'm excited to be here um, if you're new with us let me just say add my word of welcome my name's brian i'm one of the pastors and uh, if you guys are joining us online let me say welcome to you guys as well uh, glad that you are here um, it is fallish weather outside i pulled out a flannel shirt today and someone say amen to that I mean, it's a little bit probably too warm for flannel, but I'm okay with that. I was just wanting to dive in head first and we're there. I'm like, I'm mentally there, so I'm gonna just gonna wear thick things for the rest of the year. It's okay. So when we get that 90 degree day around Christmas, I'll just be wearing my flannel and sweating. It's okay. It's okay. Um, I want to draw your attention to a couple things before we jump into our message today, and we've got a lot of ground that we're going to cover today. But uh, two things out in our lobby, we've got something called the Foster Closet, where we're actually uh, receiving collections uh, to help uh, uh, support uh, emergency care uh, foster parents. Um, so when Someone gets a call at 8 o'clock at night and says, we've got two children that we want you to, to take in tonight and tomorrow night, and they don't have diapers or they don't have formula or whatever it might be. We're uh, we're bringing life to our community by supporting those parents, and many of you are those parents. And so I want to say thank you for those who serve um, in that capacity. That's really awesome. But if you go out in the lobby, just to the left on the wall, you're going to find some of these little cards hanging off of some string, and it's really pretty display there on the left. If you take one, they've got specific items that we're looking to uh, be donated. So if you haven't done it yet, okay, stop by there, just grab one. If you're not sure what you want to bring, just close your eyes and do this right here and then grab one and take it, go to Target and go buy something, okay? So that'd be great. That's foster closet stuff. Um, The other thing out in the lobby are uh, these uh, free family movie night tickets. So last week, we said our big event that we're doing this October, which is the month we are in, in case you didn't know, we're halfway through this bad boy, all right? October the 30th, all right? Right here, uh, actually going to be across the street at the Family Life Center, we're doing our first ever free family movie night. It's a way to bless our community, expecting nothing in return. This is a time for you guys to get together and hang out but it's more than that a time for you to invite someone that's not a part of our community yet and so there's some tickets out there in the check-in area Um, if you go to where our kids check in there's a little thing on the wall there that's got some of these tickets now you don't have to have a ticket these are great tools to invest and invite friends and if you remember last week we said every family do what all right a couple of you were listening that was good all right every family bring a family all right let's say it together go every family Bring a family, all right, that's, that's, the, that's the responsibility you have. Show up and bring someone with you. Look, if you don't have kids, that's okay. If you see kids walking down the street, feel free, just grab them, throw them in your car, bring them to the family movie night. It's to- don't do that, okay, we'll get in trouble with the law, but that won't be good. So, but just want to bring that to your attention and, uh, and make sure that we're all a part of that on that special day, okay? Uh, we've been in a series called The Story. Everyone say The Story. You got your, anybody got your story Bibles in here today? Let's see them. Let's raise them up high. Come on. Be proud. Be proud. You're responsible. You brought it to church. That's good. Nice work. All right, very good. If you're still looking to grab one of these, we do have a few left that we can uh, put into your hands, so let one of us know. We'd be happy to let you know how you can uh, get your hands on a story Bible. Next week, you're going to be reading chapter 10 in advance for that chap, for, uh, that message. Um, but basically, what we're doing, if you're new, is, is we're walking cover to cover through the Scriptures, covering all the key stories of the Scriptures, um, to, so that we can see this upper narrative thread that spans from Genesis all the way through to revelation um, that brings us the Messiah that plants the church that we get to be a part of today, um, and, then, and then tells us about what's going to come here in the future. So we're really excited to continue that with you today. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump right in. And again, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to buckle up, okay? Lord, thank you for the chance to, uh, to open your word. We're thankful for the story that's been written um, for our good um, and for your glory. And God, we're thankful for the Messiah that's going to come through, uh, even what we're going to talk about today. And, uh, God, we're thankful for the sins that can be forgiven uh, because of what, what Jesus did on the cross for us, Lord. We pray today that, as always, you'd help us to leave here changed and not the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question as we get going this morning. Have you ever faced a setback in life? Yes, yeah, we could probably all do a resounding yes. The better question is probably how many setbacks did you face this past week, right, if we're honest? Um, setbacks are very much a part of our lives. Difficult times are very much a part of our lives, and uh, 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 opposite of what th- many of the prosperity gospel preachers say, um, even for Christians, you're going to face times of difficulty. It's not going to be this you know rose petal walkway with unicorns and rainbows flying around around you all the time. I even mean, as a Christian, we're going to face uh, setbacks. It might be financial setbacks in your budget, you know, right? It might be a relationship setback with your spouse or with maybe with some of your kids. Um, it could be a career setback. It could be a health setback that you've been facing, but we're going to face setbacks of various shapes and of various sizes. Setbacks can make us feel like we're not moving forward or like we're not making progress. And because of that, they can seem kind of frustrating. They can frustrate us and they can seem to derail our plans and at times make us feel stuck. But here's what I believe. How we view setbacks as Jesus followers and as Christians is crucial, And in the story that we're going to look at today, what I want us to do, I thought this is actually the shortest chapter in the story Bible here, and it's only four chapters in your regular Bibles. What I thought we'd do is walk through this narrative of Naomi and Ruth, and I want us to make some applications, and I want us to look at how they came up against setbacks and what God did through those setbacks. And I hope that today this will be an encouragement to you, and I really believe if we can change our perspective about our setbacks, um, it really has the ability to change a lot of your lives and your relationships that you're in today. So let's do this. Let's jump in on page 121. Um, it's going to be on the screens if you didn't bring your story Bible today. Let's read through it and make some applications as we go. In the days, it says on page 121, in the days when judges rule. Pause there for just a minute. Okay, it's easy if you know the story of Ruth to make this like a Disney princess story, okay? This is not what—that statement that has just been made tells us there is no castle, there is no Tinkerbell, there is no moat, there is no really happy music in this. In the time in which the judges ruled was a very, very dark time in history, okay? We're going to talk a little bit more about that later in the message today, but this beautiful story uh, of Naomi and Ruth, which we're going to walk through today in completion, it it was— It was uh, cast on the backdrop that was very very dark with sin okay this time of the judges we said last year was about 300 years okay Um, this is a very very dark time and a very unlikely story in the midst of that time keep going in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land so a man from Bethlehem and Judah together with his wife and his two sons they went to live for a while in the country of Moab the man's name was Elimelech his wife's name was Naomi everyone say Naomi And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab, and they lived there. So we start this out pretty bleak. It was the time of the judges, and there's a famine in the land in Bethlehem. Now, that's kind of ironic because Bethlehem actually means house of bread. But there was no bread in the house of bread for the people of God there. Uh, now, th- this is likely the famine that's mentioned in Judges chapter 6, when Gideon is on the scene ruling over Israel. Okay, if you're taking notes, it's a great thing to go back and study out. Uh, most scholars think this is right around Judges chapter 6. And in this instance is speaking of a food shortage, clearly, um, because we're going to see what they do here. But remember, it's the time of the judges. So there's a lot of spiritual darkness here that's taking place. And often God would use physical famine to show his people the spiritual famine that was going on in their hearts and that's what was happening right here okay now in the minds of Elimelech and Naomi this was certainly a difficult situation um, they, they had built a family in Bethlehem they had built a home in Bethlehem um, they had built a business and a livelihood there in Bethlehem they had raised kids there um, if you go and study about the Ephrathites at all it says they're Ephrathites from Bethlehem again that name doesn't mean much to us now but but most people think that they were pretty well off okay because of the line they came from those Ephrathites, all right. So this is really a a riches to rags kind of story. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi weren't used to having need of anything. They weren't they weren't used to being in a place where they were vulnerable at all. And so this would have been very foreign for this family to have experienced this coming from means. But because of this famine that they come up against, Elimelech makes a decision for his family. And he decides that instead of staying with God's people in the promised land, that land that Joshua and Caleb and Moses and all these men and women before had fought so hard to get into, a land that God had miraculously intervened so they could get into, he chose to leave that and he chose to go to the pagan land of Moab and take his family with him. Now, this is no doubt a bad decision as we're going to see as we work through this story for Elimelech and for his family. But let's talk about Moab just for a second, just to give you some context. Uh, Moab was not a good place at all. All right. You can do some further study on your own on it, but the Moabites are mentioned many times throughout the Old Testament as a very wicked and idolatrous people. Um, God actually called Moab a washbowl, okay? Uh, in Psalm 60. That's not like a compliment, like, oh, what a beautiful basin for purification. No, no, no. It was a washbowl for dirty feet, okay? That's what he called Moab. God called it that. So imagine the context here. They're walking around in sandals, all right? They've got Birkenstocks on, and they're in dirty, dusty conditions, walking most places. They're around a lot of livestock and animals, and we all in this part of the country know exactly what that's like and what those creatures leave on the ground that these people were stepping through, okay? You guys with me? Don't say it out loud, but you know what they stepped in, all right? This is the base that they were washing their feet off in. So this is what God calls Moab. He says, this is a place for refuse and dirt and trash. It's a place of spiritual desolation and it's a wasteland. But Elimelech, because he's uncomfortable, because he's up against the level of setback, he makes a sinful decision to move his family to Moab. Now keep reading and look what happens. Now we don't know how long this took for this to happen, but on page 121 it says, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Now we don't know the exact timeline of this, but it was pretty quickly after they moved over to Moab. So put yourself in Naomi's shoes for a moment. She was obedient to her husband, who made the decision for their family to go over across the Dead Sea, or around the Dead Sea, on the other side of the Dead Sea, to Moab, and, and took his family there. She's obedient to him in that. She trusted his judgment in that as they moved over there, and now she's been uprooted from her home, everything she knew in Bethlehem, and she's over here in Moab, and her husband dies that's quite a setback isn't it calling that a setback might even be an understatement because In this culture, it was more than just losing a companion. For all the ladies in the room, if you lost your husband today, that would be devastating. It would be hard because that's your companion, that's your friend, right? And in many ways, most of the men in the room today are probably providers at some level. If if you're doing it right, you should be providing for your family as the spiritual leader of your home, right? But here's the thing. It was more than just that in this culture because this was the time of the judges where there was a lot of violence towards women. Um, There there was really just a complete and utter misuse of women overall in this culture culture and so the the man had a very much a protector role in this culture so a woman that had lost her husband had lost more than just a friend had even lost more than just provision she had actually lost her protection and made herself vulnerable and her future was very very uncertain at this point at which she loses her husband now typically in that situation you lose your husband your sons are gonna kind of come up and they're gonna take care of you but look what happens to her sons keep reading 121 now Limelech Naomi's husband died And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. Everyone say Ruth. Uh, We'll come back to her in a minute. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So she not only loses her husband, then a few years later she loses both sons who were taking care of her, who are protecting her and providing for her. So she's going through major setback number one, major setback number two, and she's probably thinking like you or I do when we go through setbacks sometimes in life. God, are you still up there? Do you care about me? God, am I being punished for something? Because up to this point in the story, we don't know any sin that Naomi has committed. Okay? She's been obedient to her husband and following him uh, in that culture, the way they make those decisions, following him over to, the, to Moab. She's not done anything wrong up to this point, and she's thinking probably like you and I. God, do you care? Have you forgotten about me? I mean, what, you took my husband, and as if that wasn't bad enough, you now took both of my sons? Maybe that's where you sit today as you face some setbacks that you carried in with you. Maybe there's some relationship things, some career things, some help things. You're thinking like, my God, have you, have you forgotten about me? Do you, do you still care? Are you still up there? And it's easy to feel that way when we face difficulties and setbacks in life. Amen? Story, page 121. Look what it says. So this, go, this happens, and we again, we know it's roughly about 10 years that this takes place over those, those two things. And then after 10 years, it says here, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, he'd remembered his people by providing food for them. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Uh, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living, and she set out on the road uh, that would take them back into the land of Judah. So Naomi hears, after 10 years, that God has remembered his people and ended the famine. But probably, like you or I would think, after having gone through the setbacks Naomi had she probably thought God's remembered his people but has he remembered me or am I still forgotten over here in this wasteland of Moab am I still forgotten having lost my way to to have a living and have a life and having lost my family I'm just left here with these two ladies that married my sons and they head out for Bethlehem with that in mind Now, it was typical oriental custom for uh, hosts to accompany their departing guests uh, some distance down the road to kind of bid them farewell, which kind of seems to be the picture of what's happening here. The two uh, daughters-in-law, the widowed daughters-in-law are are walking with the widow towards Bethlehem, okay? Uh, uh, From from, uh, Moab to Bethlehem was about a three-day walk, for these people, okay, they kind of go up and around the, the Dead Sea, across the Jordan, and up around the Dead Sea, and then back uh, down to, uh, to Bethlehem there in, in Judah, and so she, uh, part of the way there, she starts to bid them farewell, well, as one would do in that culture, uh, but look what happens, all right, she says, then Naomi said to her two daughters, page 122, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you to your mother's home, May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown, kindness to your dead husbands, and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. I think it's important here that we note that she's still acknowledging the Lord. Like the fact that she's still asking for blessing on them from the Lord. Again, still acknowledging that God is, is in control at some level, that he has the ability to give this blessing and this kindness. But she encourages both the women to go back to Moab and make a life for themselves there. Maybe they can find another husband there. Keep going on 122. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. Now, this was probably just as shocking to Naomi as it is to me or you if you don't know the story already and how it ends. This wouldn't have been a very common thing because, again, Ruth and Orpah, they knew Moab. They grew up in Moab. They went to high school in Moab. They had friends and family in Moab. They didn't know anything about Judah, at least we think that at this point. And so for them to say, we're coming with you? Um, in essence was kind of suicidal because none of them had a way to make a life for themselves at all but this is what they tell her so this is what Naomi tells them back all right she says I I want better for you Uh, page 122 but Naomi said return home my daughters why would you come with me she says look there's nothing good coming for you if you come with me there's nothing good on the horizon coming for you if you come with me. Uh, I don't have any sons. If you were to read on in that little that little paragraph there, I don't have any sons for you to marry. And you're going to be in a foreign land that you don't know. I mean, even if I found a husband today, ladies, and I had a baby, are you going to wait around for him to grow up so that you can marry them? That's crazy. She says, no, no, no. There's nothing good for you in Judah. There's nothing good for you in Bethlehem that's coming for you if you come with me. And then she goes on to give us a little glimpse of her heart and how she's responded in her heart to her setbacks. Look at 122. She said, it is more bitter for me. Everyone say bitter for me. It's more bitter for me than for you ladies, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She says, all these setbacks that I've faced in life are because God is mad at me, because God's holding a grudge against me. His hand has turned against me for some reason. I don't know what it is, but because of it, I'm becoming bitter. And that's this is what Naomi's telling them, right? And, and, and this is often what it's easy for us as Christians to do when we face setbacks. We believe instantly God's judging me or God has a grudge toward me. Listen to me closely when I say this, our setbacks are not paybacks from God. Our setbacks are not paybacks from God. Now, there will be times in your life when God will discipline you. The the scriptures tell us that the Lord uh, disciplines and chastens who he loves, okay? If you're his child, there may be seasons of that where God will allow setbacks uh, in the form of discipline, right? And that will reroute our lives. That might reshape our character in some way. But that's not always the case, all right? If you remember uh, last week, uh, we talked about how Samson's story taught us something. It taught us, that just because things seem to be going well and we have some level of blessing in our life doesn't mean that everything is okay and God's ignoring your sin, right? Remember that? Just because everything's good doesn't mean that everything is okay between you and God. Conversely, in this story, what we're shown is just because you're facing setbacks doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing everything wrong, okay? Now, when I say that, I want to make this caveat, all right? Sometimes it's easy when we start talking like this. we got people in the room that are like, oh, okay, well, all these bad decisions I've been making, oh, that's, that's you know, God, God's, it's just setbacks, you know, God will take care of it for me. I have a friend that I follow on Facebook, and I kind of keep in touch with him loosely, and uh, we've been friends for a few years now. And, and this guy, he just makes bonehead decision after bonehead decision after bonehead decision after bonehead decision. And, but then he'll get on Facebook, and he'll say, well, God's just going to have to take care of me here. I'm up against the wall again. God's going to have to help me here. I'm in a corner again now. Hey, guys, I need some prayer. Can y'all pray for me? Pray for me, brother. Pray for me, sister. And I'm like, bro, maybe you just need to start like applying God's word and not just knowing what it says. Maybe you should start talking to some people and getting some wisdom from some people who have been there and done that. Because if you are up against setback after setback after setback after setback after setback, it might not be that those things are from God. It might just be that you're stupid. You know what I mean? I mean, that's kind of what I want to tell him, but I love him, and so I don't want to be harsh with him. But that's where I'm at, you know? And and so I want you to know that as well. There are moments when we place ourselves in situations that produce setbacks, but we don't necessarily see that in the the story that we're given today. We see Naomi up to the point at which her response to God is not wrong. Up to that point, she's not done anything. She's just done what she was supposed to do. And yet she saw setback after setback after setback. Now, after Naomi tells her daughters to turn back, daughters in law to turn back, one listens. Orpah goes back. She says, Yeah, you're right, Naomi. Moab would be better for me. I'm not going to Bethlehem. I'm going back. But the other one does not. Ruth, look what Ruth says. I think this is really important. Page 122. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, listen to this, will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord, may Yahweh, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is huge. See, Ruth's statement there to Naomi, that oath that she makes in the name of Yahweh, means that she has owned Yahweh as her God. This is, Ruth is now a woman of faith. Now, this is nuts, because somewhere along the path, God used the setbacks that Naomi and her family had to reroute them in some way to Moab, right? Even though it was a bad decision on Limelech's part, God still used those setbacks to bring Ruth into a relationship with Yahweh. That's an incredible thing. And this is what it means for them. This is what it means for you and I. God is up to something in your setbacks. God is up to something in your setbacks, even when you can't see it. God in some way used Naomi and her family's time in Moab to bring Ruth into a relationship with God. And there's hope in this for us. Just let me tell you this. Naomi, again, for part of this time, is bitter once God deals with her the way he deals with her, as she describes it. She says, I'm bitter because God has dealt harshly with me. God can use imperfect people to reach people with the gospel. That's incredible. That should be hope for you and me. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect every day. I make mistakes constantly. Sometimes my attitude is wrong. And sometimes the words that come out of my mouth are wrong. But God can still use that in the midst of your setbacks to reach people for him. Under all other circumstances, for all likely purposes, Ruth should have died a Moabitess in Moab, worshiping false gods. That's how Ruth should have died. But God used this rerouting of Naomi's life and her family to bring her into a relationship with him. Listen, the difficulties and setbacks that you've had or that you've been facing this year or this month or this week— These are things that God is using as a purpose in them because God is up to something in your setbacks. And I would suggest that many times those setbacks are because we're too selfish on our own to just go after people that need Jesus. If I just know myself, guys, let's have some real talk. I'm too selfish to go after those people on my own and come out of my comfort zone a bit. And so God uses setbacks and allows setbacks to move us into the path of people that need to know Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here. She comes into a relationship with Yahweh. And I love that he's just working here behind the scenes even when they can't see it. Now he'll keep doing that as we go on in the story. So let's keep moving. Now the story continues. Naomi and Ruth make it to Bethlehem. They take that three day walk and they go to Bethlehem. And uh, the the ladies meet them at the gate and they say, Oh, wait, is that Naomi? Is that that the Naomi that left 10 years ago? Like, is that her? And uh, Naomi goes, Don't call me Naomi because Naomi means pleasant. She says, Call me Mara because Mara means bitter. Again, she still sees all these setbacks in her life as God somehow like judging her or holding a grudge against her or being mad at her in some way instead of him being up to something for her good so she has that conversation with well, the ladies need to eat Okay? She and Ruth need to figure out a way to eat, and they don't have anyone to take care of them, and uh, they don't have husbands to look out for them or sons to look out for them. And so here's another setback for the both of them. So Ruth has faced a setback by even going to Bethlehem in the first place with Naomi. The odds of her finding a husband over here are, are slim to none. Then they get over there, and they don't have anything to eat, and so they've got to go out and figure out a way to get around this setback or deal with this setback. And so Ruth says, hey, Naomi, I'm going to go out to the fields, and I'm going to pick up scraps behind The harvesters. Now, what they would do in that time is when the harvesters would go through the fields, harvesting the crops, they would have ladies behind them. Many times it was poor ladies, uh, poor families, ladies that represented poor families, that would pick up the scraps of what was left behind. And that's what Ruth is saying she's going to go do. But remember, Ruth is from Moab, and she's not from Bethlehem in Judah. She doesn't know anything about the field. She doesn't know where to go. I mean, she's like dependent on Siri on her phone to tell her everywhere she needs to go. Like every turn, she's dependent. She has no idea how the roads work in Bethlehem. But look what it says. So so Ruth went out, and she entered a field, and she began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Everyone say Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. I love that the writer says it that way. As it turned out, she just happened to stumble upon the very field that actually had a person in it that could marry her and save her and naomi's life i mean she just so happened to years prior married a guy who was from israel and he died and just so happened to be obedient and follow Naomi back to Bethlehem and just so happened to get hungry and just so happened to offer to go out and pick up grain in the fields and she just so happened as it were she landed in a field belonging to a big hunk of man named Boaz right and he was wealthy and he was tall dark and handsome and good-looking I'm, I'm filling in some of that stuff that's not in your Bible okay I'm just filling that in and, and she stumbles upon him and He's related to Elimelech, who was Naomi's dead husband, all right? This is all going to make sense in just a minute, all right? So she just by chance ends up there. Listen, God is working behind the scenes in your setbacks. God is at work on something behind the scenes in your setback. We see it here as she lands in this field. So look what Boaz says. I love this part. One twenty-three. Boaz asked the overseers of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? I just imagine him saying it that way. You know what I mean? Like, she looks exotic. She's not from around here. Who is that pretty lady? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. So Boaz, like, well, I'm going to talk to her. Man. Here, here, hold this. I'm going over there to talk to her. He goes and says, Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Those people that were gleaning behind the harvesters, okay? Stay here with them. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, you go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. That part where he says, I've told the men not to lay a hand on you, that was like a threat. I mean, really, like it was It was do not touch her. And let me let me just explain what I mean for a minute. It's tempting when you read the book of Ruth, especially when you know the ending, is to look at it through the Disney lens, like I said earlier. Like this is some fairy tale mindset, this fairy tale time in history, and there were knights in shining armor, and there were, it was a great time to be a follower of God, that every man you came across in Bethlehem loved, loved God and, and worshiped Yahweh, and he, it was wonderful, and all the women were, were well treated by the men, and the women were respectful to the men. It was a wonderful time, right? That's that's the impression that is easy to fall into when you know the ending of the story. It's easy to think that all landowners took great care of their employees and that they were all generous and that they helped out needy random women from Moab that they found in their field. But that's not the case at all. Remember where we started today. This is the time of the Judges. And if again, if you, if you have not read through the book of Judges, go back and do it this afternoon. that will do some great homework for you. This was an incredibly dark period in the history of God's people, this time of the Judges. Wickedness and cruelty and sin that's unimaginable was taking place. Like, so every man that you stumbled upon or stumbled into his field would not have been one who would have treated you kindly and respectfully and been God-fearing and looked out for your best interest. He probably would have taken advantage of you and assaulted you. There's actually parts in Ruth that even say that very thing. Um, I mean, just to give you kind of a, a, a summary of, of kind of how the judges win, if you were to read Judges 19, uh, tell us about it. There's a Levite priest there who had a concubine. So he's staying overnight at this man's house with his concubine, okay, kind of like his wife, sort of, okay, for all practical purposes. And some men come to this place, and they want to sleep with him, kind of reminiscent of the Sodom and Gomorrah thing with Lot. Well, the guy who owns the place they're staying, he's wicked enough that he says, here, take my virgin daughter and go take her. They don't want that. So the Levite priest, this man is supposed to be a man of God, says, here, take my concubine. These men, this group of men, take this concubine. They gang rape her all night until she dies. And he finds her the next morning lying on his floor. He takes her, throws her on the back of his horse, and goes and he cuts her into 12 pieces and sends a piece of her to each tribe in Israel. Okay, I'm not trying to be gross or graphic just for shock value. I'm trying to let you know this is the time period that Boaz and Ruth's beautiful love story took place in. It was an absolutely wicked, atrocious time to be alive and this is what was going on women were incredibly mistreated looked at as pieces of meat looked at as objects this is the this is the scene here all right So when he does and says what he says to Ruth, this is extremely uncommon favor from Boaz. And so she responds. She knows. She knows the vulnerability that she and Naomi have faced since all the men in in her life had stepped out of the scene and gone on, right? And they died. So this is what she says back to him. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She even draws attention to the fact that she's from Moab. And Boaz says, I know. I knew you looked exotic in the first place. So you're beautiful. That's why. No, he didn't say that either. All right. He says, he says, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and your mother and your homeland. And you came to live with a people that you didn't know before. And then he gives her a blessing. He says, may the Lord, may Yahweh repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of God of israel so boaz we get a beautiful picture of his character here okay he's this honorable god fearing man and he says look i've heard of how great a woman you are ruth uh and, and you're easy on the eyes too all right all, he says i've heard of all these selfless things you've done for your mother-in-law naomi but little does he know that blessing he just pronounced on ruth was actually going to come through himself now keep going in the story all right now this, this is i love this part too all right 124 at mealtime Boaz said to Ruth, he said to her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And she sat down with the harvesters and he offered her some roasted grain to eat, all right? So they're eating together. This is, this is the first date. It's kind of a group date, all right? If you guys watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, all right, this is group date, all right? There's a, there's a bunch of people around. They're not by themselves. But this is the point in the movie where they sit down to have a meal together and they both like reach for the same dinner roll at the same time and they accidentally touch hands and they look up. And she gives him those eyes I can't bat my eyes and the music starts to play can you feel the love tonight you know you're gonna hear your pastor sing Elton John and falsetto this morning did you yeah that's what we're doing in church no and then and so and they're, they're having this moment there as they're having dinner together right and Boaz looks over at his men and he says where did that music come from you know no he didn't <laughs> This is what he says. Look at 123. He gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Let her keep getting the stuff she's getting, the scraps. But I love this part. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. He says, drop some of the good stuff on purpose. Leave her some handfuls of purpose because I want to let her know I'm here. I'm taking care of her. I'm in control of this situation at some level. And I want you to leave her some handfuls of purpose. Listen, I wish we had time to go there this morning. Go home today. This is more homework for you. You guys got a lot of homework today. I hope you're taking notes, okay? Go home today and look at the parallels between Boaz and Jesus Christ. Look at the parallels between Boaz and Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful, it's a whole other sermon series, guys. We don't have time to go there. But what I love in this, the picture of Christ that Boaz gives in this situation is that even though Ruth has been up against setback after setback, she's in a difficult situation, Boaz leaves her little handfuls of purpose just to encourage her and to bless her. And isn't it just like God in the middle of your setbacks for God to give you some little handfuls of purpose that don't necessarily fit? the situation that you're in ultimately but they just give you little words of encouragement maybe it's a text from a friend you haven't heard from for years or it's a letter that you get in the mail or an email or it's just an encouraging word from someone else who has been going through the same thing listen those are little handfuls of purpose from god your father to tell you that hey you know what this ain't gonna fix it right now but this is just a little little glimpse that i have full control and everything's gonna be okay that's what boaz is doing for her. he says look i'm gonna drop some of the good stuff you can get that you can get the scraps i'm dropping some good stuff for you as well someone say amen so ruth goes out and she gleans the scraps and the good stuff as well that the men drop for her on purpose and she takes it back to naomi and naomi's like whoa How did you get so much? Like, did you, did you like, did you like mob somebody? Did you, did you like hold somebody up? Like, I mean, I know we're in the time of the judges and that kind of stuff kind of goes, but like, you can't be mugging people, Ruth, not in Bethlehem. She said, How did you get that much? Somebody's looking out for you or something. And so Ruth says, Well, there's this man, and his name is Boaz. And I'm just gonna tell you, he's tall, dark, and handsome. He came up riding on a horse. We had this meal together, and our hands touched. And I'm supplying some things, but use your imagination, all right, church? Come on, it's okay. Use your imagination. She says, there's this guy, and his name was Boaz, right? And Naomi says on page 124, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Everyone say guardian redeemer. It's not common language for us today, but this this is kind of how the situation went, and this is what a guardian redeemer did, okay? If a woman's husband died and she became a widow, okay? um, Pardon me, a woman's husband died. The husband's next of kin had the responsibility to marry the woman to preserve his brother's legacy and buy back the man's land, to redeem the man's land, to redeem the man's wife, and to redeem that legacy. And it sounds strange, but this is how they did it. The purpose was not to allow the physical property to go outside of the family, to be lost, but it was also to carry on the family name so that the next of kin could have a son, Lord willing, with the widow so that the the name of that father, that father's family name, could be carried on. That was the gist of how they did it there, and so that's what Naomi's talking about. She says, whoa, well, it just so happened that you landed in a really good field, and it just so happened that you stumbled upon a really respectable, God-fearing man, and it just so happens... He was related to a limeleck, my dead husband from all those years ago. Right? It just so happened. Right? You guys with me? All right? So she sees an opportunity. Because this goes on for a while with Boaz providing for them. Okay, We don't we don't know the exact timeline of this. But this goes on for a while with him dropping those handfuls of purpose, taking care of Ruth, and it, by extension, taking care of Naomi. All right? Well, after a while, Naomi sees an opportunity. She says, hey, Ruth, this is an opportunity for you to get a husband. This is, this is enough, enough playing around with Boaz. All right? You've played hard to get for too long. All right? You, but you've already given him the, the, the batting eyes when you guys had dinner together. It's time to do this. All right? And she, she plays matchmaker all right look at page 125 she says tonight boaz he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor she says wash take a bath put on some perfume none of that cheap stuff the good stuff that smells really nice get dressed in your best clothes she says put on a a good dress fix your hair get your hair did right You you guys say that here we used to say that back in north carolina like, get your hair did all right she said get your hair did be looking nice you know put some paint on the barn like put some you know Make like, yourself look i'm just kidding all right i'm just kidding She says make yourself look nice and go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. I've said this before, but teenagers and ladies in the room—if you want something out of a man, fill his belly. All right, that's just good life advice. Naomi knew this. She was married to Elimelech for a long time. She knew. She said, "Wait till he's eaten and he's drunk and he's he's feeling good, and then go ask him for what you want." That, that's just men are simple, lady. We are we are we are one-dimensional and we are simple. That's just all there is to it, right? All right, that's enough about that. We'll go into our marriage series later this year, okay? All right. So this is what he says. she she says, go there, uh, let him finish eating and drinking when he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what you're supposed to do. So Ruth says, okay, I'm going to do it. Keep going. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and uncovered his feet and laid down. And in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he goes, who are you? Because it was dark. Right, he asked, "I am your serv." Uh, he asked, and she said, "I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family." So picture the scene here. This is a threshing floor where they're out there where they're out there threshing the the, the things that they've gathered that day. And it's dark, and it's not just Boaz in there. There's other men in there that have been doing the threshing as well. And so there's all these people in there. It's pitch black, all right? They don't have electricity like we have. They don't have any nightlights stuck in the wall like we do. You can't see who it is, which is why Naomi said, make sure you know where he's going to lay down so you don't pick the wrong guy and go uncover his feet, all right? That's a true story, all right? So she goes to him, and it's dark. Now, some crazy left-field theologians think that or, or have submitted that possibly there was a level of impropriety that happens here which is so bogus to me for a couple of reasons knowing the character of both Ruth and Boaz were both godly people that would not have done something like that number one but number two there were multiple people all around okay so this is not some sexual thing that happened here so just put that out of your mind and again those people that write that I just think you're crazy or you, you I don't know I don't know what your, what your thoughts are you're weird but here's the deal what they did this is this is a customary type thing of uncovering the feet okay she uncovers his feet by probably taking off his sandals um, or some submit that she just uncovered his feet from his longer robe. They would kind of tuck up into themselves when they would sleep, and so it kind of covers feet. And so it was a symbolic thing. She would uncover his feet and lie down there as an act of humility and submission. Okay, that's what that was. That, that was all it was, all right? It, because he didn't have to redeem her. Even though he was a guardian redeemer for their family, he didn't have to. Now, he would have shame on him if, if he was the one that was supposed to do it, and he didn't do it, but he didn't have to do it, all right? It was just a, an opportunity or a responsibility and so she uncovers his feet and lays down there when he wakes up startled she essentially proposes to him i mean that's what's happening here i mean she pops the ring out gets down on the knee and maybe she doesn't do all that but but she does propose to him she says look you're our guardian redeemer spread the corner of your garment over me again symbolic of that covering that protection that provision okay she says i want to marry you do you want to marry me check yes or no right and do it right now that's what she tells him. Again, probably a bit shocking the way it all went about, but look at what his response is. 125, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. He says, you're not a gold digger, right? You're not out for, for money, all right? I ain't saying she's a gold digger, right? Well, that's we won't go any further than that, Okay whether rich or poor she's not a gold digger she's not going after the young men she's doing the respectable honorable thing and again I just know Boaz was a good-looking fellow there's no way he wasn't all right he was a good-looking guy too but he says now my daughter don't be afraid I will do for you all you ask he says I'm gonna be your guardian redeemer but if you can imagine the story of Ruth and Naomi have just been filled with a ton of setbacks hasn't it well there's one more setback that jumps in right here so Boaz was, he was a guardian redeemer for their family, uh, but he was not the next of kin. He wasn't the one who had the the opportunity first to redeem the property and redeem Ruth. And there was another man who had that opportunity uh, to take that property and to take Ruth. And so Boaz, being the honorable, God-fearing man that he is, doesn't try to steer around that and reroute around it and be deceptive. He goes to this guy, and he goes to the elders there, and they go to the gate, which is where they did these transactions in the city. And uh, he goes to him, and he says, look, there's this property, bro, that you need to redeem. You should redeem it because this is a great family. You should redeem the property. And the guy is all in until he hears that Ruth is a part of the deal. Okay, and then he changes his mind. Look at page 126. At this, the guardian redeemer said, well, if she's a part of the deal, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And Boaz goes, I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) And he smiled really big, and he was like doing jumping jacks in his head. He couldn't do it outwardly. He didn't want to be disrespectful in that moment. But he was excited because he was going to get to have Ruth as his wife. And look at 127, how it ends. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Now, as you look at this story, and you look at the setbacks that Ruth faced, you look at the setbacks that Naomi faced, this is one of the most unlikely marriages that would ever happen in the history of the world. But listen, God was up to something in their setbacks. God was working behind the scenes. He was aligning things. He was putting her in the right field. He was putting Boaz there at the right time. He was lining up all these things for Ruth's good. But don't forget about Naomi. Last verse we're going to read here, page 127. So Boaz took Ruth, became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Naomi got her joy back, too. See, Naomi that said, hey, call me Mara because I'm bitter. She got her joy back in the end. After all that she'd been through, setback after setback, death after death after death, vulnerability that she went through, the desire for food and an inability to provide for that, God had given her a grandson and a son-in-law in Boaz that could care for her and protect her. And even though she couldn't see God lining up all these pieces behind the scene, God was up to something in her setbacks. Amen? Now get this. Close your Bibles, we're going to land right here. Do you know who her grandson was? Her grandson's name, Naomi's grandson, Ruth's son, was named Obed. Now that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you, unless you really, really know genealogies. Her son was Obed. Obed had a boy, and his name was Jesse. And Jesse had a son, and Jesse's son was named King David. And you know who's coming from the tribe of Judah, from the line of King David, who's also going to be born in Bethlehem a thousand years later. Who is his name? Jesus Christ. See, God is so big. Listen to this. Don't miss this. God is so big and has so much power and authority and sovereignty in the upper story he's writing that he can draw in a Moabite woman who for all practical purposes should have died in Moab. As someone who was not a worshiper of God and who went after false gods, he was able to bring her into his family and use her after setback, after setback, after setback to preserve the line of the Messiah that would one day save us all from our sins. How good is that? That's a great place to say amen, church. That's the God you serve. So listen, here's what I want you to take away from today. I want you to be encouraged and I want you to take this away. This is your application. Our setbacks can be set-ups if we don't give up. See, it's tempting when you're facing setbacks to just want to throw in the towel and just walk away. Forget this whole thing. Maybe you get bitter like Naomi did there for that season. Do not give up in the middle of your setbacks because God is setting you up for something great. This story of Ruth and Naomi and of Obed and of Jesse and of King David and eventually Jesus was unlikely— But God was up to something in their setbacks. He was working behind the scenes. And so whatever you carried in here today, whatever setback you've been facing, don't give up. Don't let the enemy get on your shoulder and cause you to surrender and lose hope in that moment. Keep hoping when it seems hopeless. Keep charging against those setbacks in the name of Jesus. And allow God to write a beautiful story for your good and for his glory. Because that's what he's after in the end anyway. God is doing everything He's doing right now in your life, big, small, in the middle, for your good and your joy and for His glory. Amen? Listen, He's up to something. Let Him work it out. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't lose hope. Allow those setbacks to be setups for your good and for God's glory. Amen? God's up to something in your setbacks. Let's pray. Lord God, we're grateful for the way that You use circumstances around us to reroute life at times to bring people into the family that wouldn't normally have made it into the family. But because you allow your people to face difficulties and uncertainties and setbacks, God, we can we can reach people that we wouldn't normally have even met. God, I I know that in this room there are a lot of people facing a lot of heavy things. And so Father, I just pray that today you would give them the courage and the strength to not give up, to not give in, to not throw in the towel, to not lose hope, to not get bitter but to keep walking in faith and watch you do an amazing, write an amazing story of grace in their lives. Because God, if the book of Ruth teaches us anything, it's that you're in control and that you're writing a story for our joy and our good and your glory. God, remind us today that you're up to something in the middle of the setbacks that we face. And we ask He sings in Jesus' name, amen.